So we're continuing on with our study through the book of Galatians. There's a whole lot of information in the passages we covered already as well as in those that we'll cover today. For those of you that weren't here the last time, don't worry, I'll, I'll fill you in. I know that through this book I have kind of inundated you with information as I tried to explain each verse in detail. And I know that too much information can be overwhelming, so hopefully through these 15 verses today, I can simplify it more than I have in the past so we can understand without being overwhelmed. So Paul's main theme of the book is the defense of the gospel that had been preached to the Galatians. In chapter 1, Paul stated the Galatians had deserted Christ and had turned from and had distorted the gospel. They were turning to a different gospel than what they had been taught. And what did they turn to? Their error was in thinking that justification could come by the works of the law. They added to the gospel by adding works to it. And that's what Paul addresses here. Paul goes into great detail expounding his defense of the gospel that was preached and clarifying what they had misunderstood. He started off the book by explaining that what he preached to them, the gospel that, that Paul taught, was given to him through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It came straight from Christ, so there was no chance of there being any misunderstanding of what the gospel was. What he was stating could be trusted as absolute truth. When we look through church history, we can see that this error has continued on from the time Paul wrote this letter, from the first century up to the 21st century. This issue has never gone away. There are those today that still distort the gospel, and after Paul's very specific correction of error in this letter, we would think that that misunderstanding of justification would have been eradicated, but it's simply not the case. This is also not a minor teaching that we can just ignore we're not discussing where Cain and Abel got their wives or if God can make a rock so heavy that even he cannot lift it. Topics that in the end, despite what we believe, will not ultimately affect our eternity. The doctrine of justification is foundational. Our understanding of Christ and what he has done for is redeemed. The understanding of who he is and what he has done is built upon this. So a simplified definition of justification is the act of God declaring us righteous due entirely to what Christ has done for us. This doctrine is vital to Christianity and vital for us to know and to understand. Perhaps that's why Paul spent so much time defining and explaining it and why it's important enough for us to spend time to thoroughly understand it. We need to refresh ourselves on a couple more things before we start today. Let me give you an overview of what we've covered before this. So previously, Paul showed... That justification comes by faith, and he commenced in proving that, that it was by faith, even back, even all the way back to Father Abraham, that it's always been that way. As we know the familiar verse, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The second thing, he proved that the indwelling of the Spirit never came through the law, but only after hearing with faith, after belief with faith. So now, here midway through chapter 3, Paul uses the example of a covenant to further his point. This afternoon, we're going to see a brief introduction into what a covenant is and explore Paul's example of a covenant as we finish up with chapter 3. Everything we cover today will point us to a better understanding of justification. Hopefully, these 15 verses today will prove to us that justification has always been and is still only through faith in Christ. So let's get started. 
Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul begins with to give a human example. So what other kind of example is there? Well, in the beginning of chapter 3, he started with the spiritual one that he presented at the beginning of the chapter. He started off using the Holy Spirit as an example. And now here he states that he's given a human example. He's going to use something that would have been very familiar to the Galatians to further illustrate his point. If they were Jews, they would have known about the concept of covenants from the scriptures. If they were Gentiles, they would have at least heard the concept and teachings from Christ and the apostles. They were all familiar with this. They would have also known this idea from their secular culture of the day. The concept was widespread through both the Near East and Greco-Roman culture of the day. And you'll notice here that Paul did not need to define what a covenant was, and that backs up my assertions that they were familiar with the concept already. That's why Paul uses it as an illustration. Is it as familiar of a concept for us today? Not really. It's not something we really use much outside of Scripture in normal day-to-day conversations. So first, let's explore what a covenant is before we move forward. As I said, in ancient East, a covenant was used as a means of a bond between two parties. The bond being ratified, ratified meaning made valid or put into place by swearing an oath. So the covenant is a means of a bond between two parties and is put in place by swearing an oath. So Paul starts off here stating that a covenant is not annulled or nullified or done away with once it has been ratified, once it's been approved. So a covenant then is something that in their day was understood to be fully enforced once both parties agreed to it and ratified it. So once that oath was sworn to, it was not changed in any way to add to or to take away from it. It was understood that the covenant would be fulfilled as both parties agreed to and that nothing would change that. So that is the secular understanding, and we can see how that idea visualizes what Paul is demonstrating here. We can apply that secular covenantal view with a biblical definition. So simply defined, a covenant is a commitment between God and man with God providing the terms of the covenant. So keep that in mind as we move forward. So now some of you are thinking, exactly how does this relate to the law and Paul's point on justification? I'm glad you asked. In verse 16, Paul makes a reference to a passage in Genesis when he refers to the promise that was made to Abraham. So let's quickly go to Genesis 12 and his reference, where it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out 
to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So keep in mind Paul's point and the idea behind his statements when considering this reference. He's proving to them from their knowledge of Scripture what the law was and what it was not. So first of all, this was a covenant established between God and Abraham, something that they would be familiar with already. It was a covenant that Paul is saying has never changed. It stayed in place since it was confirmed by God to Abraham, just as it was from the beginning. And we've established already that nobody changes the covenant once it has been ratified, once it's been put in place. But Paul throws in something in verse 16. He says, it does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what in the world is Paul referring to here? Let's consider this for a minute. I think when we look at this idea through Scripture, it'll be a little bit clearer about what Paul is referring to here. There's a couple things we can conclude from this statement. First, Paul is stating that the promise was made to Abraham, but when God referred to Abraham's offspring, he was referring to Christ, who would be the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Paul has been speaking of the law and his purpose through this book, so I think that's a reasonable meaning. Second, if we look to Genesis chapter 3, to a verse I'm sure we're all familiar with, we can see the application too. Genesis 3.15 reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we know in this Old Testament passage that the reference to offspring ultimately points us to Christ. But we can also look to the New Testament for some understanding of what Paul said. Matthew 1.1, it reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book, the genealogy, not of Abraham, not of David, but that of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the focus in the end of this genealogy with all of the offspring leading to him. So the fulfillment of all the families of the earth being blessed, as stated in Genesis 12, was through Christ. It was the provision of our Savior in which we are blessed. The means of our salvation is through him. And what greater blessing ever existed for us in the salvation we gained through Christ. So I know it's probably not crystal clear yet. It probably wasn't for the Galatians either at this point in the letter. As a matter of fact, some here are probably trying to process and understand this, just as I imagine the Galatians were when they read this letter. That's why he starts off verse 17 with, this is what I mean. So you know it's a tough concept to understand when within Paul's explanation, he states that he's going to explain it to us. So it's really an explanation within an explanation. He says, this is what I mean. He goes on to explain his assertion on the way in which we receive righteousness. Remember, Paul was taught by Christ by a revelation. He established that in chapter 1. So we can trust that his statements are true. Paul is stating here that the covenant was made between God and Abraham, that that covenant was established and nothing could add to or take away from it, and it would be fulfilled. He described this first in verse 15. So the covenant was made, and then 430 years later, the law was then given. But Paul is clear that the law did not annul, it did not do away with the covenant. It was still in place, just as it had been given. 
The law did not change or avoid that covenant. So if justification was meant to be through the law, then the law would have been given instead of a covenant. But what was not understood when it was given was that God intended for them to work together. Should be coming a little bit more clear now. So Paul has been explaining since chapter 1 that a different gospel was being preached by adding the works of the law to the gospel. God made a covenant with Abraham, and 430 years later, he introduced the law. The covenant that was in place first, that made provision for justification through Christ before the law was even given. So let's look to another place where Paul is explaining this to see if we can get a little more light on it to help us understand. Let's take a quick detour to what Paul would eventually write later to the Romans, explaining this very idea. So Romans 4.13, where he states, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Let me skip down to verse 18. He says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul starts off stating that the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Then his last statement was, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up and raised for our justification. It was not the law by which it came. It was by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Those first first few verses seem a bit daunting, but when we look at the entirety of Scripture, it starts to become pretty clear. So Paul is systematically, he's destroyed the idea of justification through the law, the error of perverting the gospel by adding to it. Paul is dismantling their distorted view of justification. So it should be clear to us by now that the law was not given as a means of righteousness. Paul continues on and starts talking about an inheritance in verse 18. So what inheritance is Paul referring to? He's referring to the inheritance of salvation through Christ that we also receive. It has become our inheritance through him to the redeemed. Paul is saying that if this inheritance came through the law, then the covenantal promises would be void. The assumption here is that all people know that nothing can annul God's promise, just as he said, so this cannot be the case. A covenant is not void. Paul is stating an impossibility. God made a promise that would be fulfilled through the offspring of Abraham, and it was fulfilled through Christ. The law had no part in the covenant. It was never even a consideration to fulfill justification since it came 430 years later and did nothing to change the covenant. So let me summarize what Paul is stating in these first four verses as it pertains to the first 14 in the chapter. It's plain to see when you think about what Paul is saying here, that if righteousness were through the law, then it would void God's covenantal promise. And he has proven that the covenant, once confirmed, cannot be changed. So once again, righteousness cannot be through the law. 
So that leaves us with a pressing question, as I'm sure it did for the Galatians. So knowing that righteousness is not through the law, what exactly was the purpose of the law? How, just how exactly is the law tied to justification? What is it for? Why did God give it? Why then the law? And he answers this in verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So Paul gives a three-part answer to why the law was given. First, he said it was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgressions, but transgressions against what? I think it's clear transgressions against the holy God, the ultimate lawgiver. God added the law due to transgressions, due to violating or transgressing God. The law given by God to us gives us insight into who he is, to his nature, and to his requirements. The law demonstrates to us what God expects of us, what his will is, what is and is not sin. The law defined sin for us. When we know the law, when we understand God's requirements for us, we can measure up our acts against God's requirements. And I can tell you one thing for certain, that when we do that, we will always fall short. Every time we fall short of God's law, it should remind us of our great and eternal need of redemption through Christ. It should remind us that we cannot uphold his law, that we can never perfectly uphold it. Our continual, failing, meager attempts to uphold God's law serves to drive us to the Savior. We cannot do it, but there is one that did, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that upheld the law perfectly. When you consider this, it shows us that God wanted man to understand how sinful we really are. He sets down this law, and we see over and over and over that we cannot uphold it, no matter how hard we try. Paul will explain to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 20. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law came to increase the trespass, to make us know how much we sin. To sharpen our consciousness of sin, the law is the light that shines on our sin to make it stand out. The law makes us know how much we've trespassed God in our sin. The law makes us cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the law was added because of our transgressions. The second part of why the law was given until the offspring could come. What offspring? What offspring did Paul say the covenant was to? He answered that already in verse 16. That's to Christ. He is the one mentioned in a promise to Abraham. The part I find fascinating, and it really drives home the idea that God always intended for Christ to be the means of our justification, even before he came manifest as the God-man. We know that Christ always existed, but it wasn't until the New Testament where we see him manifest in the flesh. And Paul is establishing that fact in their minds to clear up any more error in their thoughts. The law was given because a man sins against a holy and righteous God until the means of our redemption was manifest in the flesh. The law was given until the offspring should come, until the Messiah would come. And how was it put in place? Paul said it was put in place through angels, by an intermediary. It was put in place through an intermediary. Who might this be? It was Moses. He was an intermediary given the law through angels. So let me explain the last part of that. 
We all know the law was given at Mount Sinai. We've gone through that in the pastor's messages through Exodus. But how do angels come into this picture? Once again, we go to Scripture elsewhere for an answer to this. We can go to Acts 7, verses 37 and 38, where Stephen describes the account of receiving the law for some clarification. Where he stated, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So when we combine what both Paul and Stephen stated, this phrase about the angels makes sense. So the law was added for our transgressions until Christ would come. So what was the Galatians' next objection? Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the next thing both they and we might be asking is the Abrahamic covenant and the law contradictory to one another. Did God contradict himself with those two? Paul says, certainly not. May it never be. Paul expounds some more on the whole concept of sin to explain that. If it were possible for a law to be given that could justify us in righteousness, could come through the law. But that's simply not possible since we cannot perfectly uphold the law. We will and do fail every single time. Once again, God is the lawgiver and is demonstrated through the law a way for us to know what he requires of us. The word, the scripture, the writings, it enclosed, it enveloped, it imprisoned, everything under sin. The law reveals to every one of us that we cannot adhere perfectly to God's requirements of us. We all fall short. There are none righteous. No, not one. The law brings us the knowledge of our inability to uphold it, which in turn reminds us of our great and urgent need for a savior, for that redeemer to redeem us. The more we try and adhere to the law, the more we are aware of our sin Every one of us knows that our failures point us to the one by which we have redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the promise of righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 23. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Don't you find it interesting that Paul is responding to the exact same question we would have and probably have had if we were there. He just explained how the law did not come until 430 years after the covenant was made, that it all looked forward to Christ. So naturally, we would all ask, so how did things work out between the time the covenant was given and when Christ came? So Paul answers that for us before we can ask. Before faith, we were held captive under the law, born to adhere to it until Christ came. The law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, our instructor, our tutor. We're all familiar with that. But let's take a closer look at that wording to better understand and get a picture of what Paul is painting here. So the word guardian in verse 23 describes a very important concept the Galatians would have understood clearly, a concept that was known to the Jews from, their, from its Old Testament roots, and also the Greeks would have known it from their educational system. So let me explain. The root of the Greek word for guardian gives the idea of education, but not just the education, but the ultimate goal of the education. It's end goal. 
It gives a picture of the upbringing of children. So parents, think of this as you would educate to instruct to raise your children. Children need direction. They need teaching and instruction and discipline. Both the process of education and the end goal are indicated by this word guardian. We need the same in our understanding of the law. Apply that idea and concept to God, his law, and to us. We are the children that need direction. We need teaching. We need instruction. We get this through knowledge of his law. We know God by what he tells us and requires of us. We learn of his nature by knowing what he says is good and bad. So the ultimate goal of us knowing God's law is realizing that we cannot perfectly uphold it and knowing why we need Christ. That's the end goal of our instruction. Understanding the law allows us to understand ourselves, how we daily violate his law and sin. No matter how hard we try, we cannot perfectly uphold God's standards of holiness the knowledge we get results in us looking to the one that that, can, that the one that that can provide us redemption, and we gain our justification by our faith in Him. So the law taught us, and its end goal was leading us to Christ. So we were shut in, we were imprisoned until Christ was revealed, and now we are justified by faith in Him. Why then the law? The law led us to Christ. Verse twenty-six. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So on to the final section of this chapter. Paul addresses a question of the day for some of the Jews. Who are the true heirs of Abraham? So Paul goes back to the idea of inheritance and the problem with some of the Jews who felt they were still better than the Gentiles. We saw that earlier with Peter and his separation and eating. They would separate themselves from the Gentiles. He emphasizes again that the redeemed are now one. There's no longer a separation. If we are Christ, then we are the seed of Abraham. We are the heirs of the promise that was made thousands of years ago. It was a promise made then that benefits us today. One commentator explains it like this. He says, God, by the law, protects the race against self-destruction until faith is revealed. God, by the law, protects the race against self-destruction until faith is revealed. The law of God served this function until Christ was revealed to us. God's design for righteousness had been revealed to us. The law still teaches us about the requirements of God, his nature, and his demands, but that knowledge points us to Christ. It's through faith in him and him alone that we are the sons of God. Jesus spoke of the law in Matthew 5, 17, where he stated, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law, and this aligns perfectly with what Paul is stating here. The law still stands to lead us to Christ. It has not been abolished but it's our guide that points us to the Redeemer. In Romans 13, 13, Paul states, he said, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So put on gives the idea of sinking into to clothe oneself with. So at redemption, we are clothed in Christ. We are now the new man identified in Christ. Paul describes this in another way to the Colossians in 3.8. He says, but now 
you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with this practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the old man has passed away. We are now the new man putting on Christ for the redeemed. The old man is put off and Christ is put on. We are clothed in Christ, renewed in the knowledge of him, our creator. Early in Galatians, Paul stated that God is no respecter of persons. So it does not matter if we were Jews or Greeks, if we're poor or wealthy, ignorant or intellectual, there is no separation in that respect. We are either sheep or goats, the lost or the redeemed, children of God or children of Satan. But those that are the children of God are all one in Christ. All the redeemed are one in Christ. There is no difference. There is no longer a separation. So we close out chapter 3 with Paul continuing on to explain the error of some of the Galatians. Let me summarize. So Paul is describing in detail the means of righteousness and the purpose of the law. There were those in his day, and there are still those in our day, that think righteousness is through upholding the law. But Paul destroyed any inkling of truth to that claim. Paul starts off looking back prior to the law when the covenant was made with Abram. And in Abraham, all the families in the earth would be blessed through his offspring, which was Christ. Salvation would be available to all, hence the blessing to all. And then Paul moves on to the law, which came 430 years later, and explains what it was for, the purpose and the function of it. He mentions the time frame to show that the promise was made prior to the law. This shows that since righteousness was not tied to the law, it came much later than God's promise. The law was never intended to provide righteousness. And then Paul describes to us what the law was for. The law was added for our transgressions against God. God provided the law as a means for dealing with sin until our Redeemer came. God, by the law, protects the race against self-destruction until faith is revealed. Why then the law? The law was our guardian. It was our schoolmaster, our instructor. The law gives a picture of the upbringing of children who need direction and teaching and instruction and discipline and shows us ourselves. The ultimate goal of us knowing God's law is realizing we cannot perfectly uphold it and knowing why we need Christ. Understanding the law allows us to understand ourselves, how we transgress his law, and we sin daily. I think many of us start off as children with the idea that we can be good, that we can do something to gain God's favor. Our nature seems to tell us that we can earn something from God, that we need to do something to help out. Yet when we understand the law, it becomes our teacher. Reveals to us otherwise. Reveals to us that we cannot uphold God's law. We cannot be good, so we cannot gain favor from God. The law gives us direction. It points us to Christ. And Paul ends by stating that we gain salvation, we gain righteousness through faith in Christ. We could not uphold the law perfectly, but Christ could. He upheld it perfectly and became the final sacrifice. By his perfect obedience, we get his imputed righteousness. His righteousness is accounted to us. All our sins are accounted to him. Those that are redeemed have received the promise given to Abraham, righteousness through Christ. This should end any idea of us thinking there is anything we can do to gain righteousness. There is nothing we can do. We cannot perfectly uphold the law. The law revealed to us God's requirements, how we fall short in sin. 
and why we need one to go before us to be our Savior and our Redeemer. Justification is the act of God declaring us righteous due entirely to what Christ has done for us. It is only through him that we will escape the wrath of God. Christ Jesus took on the sin of the redeemed and due to that, the wrath for us. So why then the law? So it could show us our great and urgent need for the Christ that laid down his life for us. In Acts 4, when Peter was before the council at Jerusalem, he summed it up. He tells them that they crucified Christ and God raised him from the dead. He then states, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there, is no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in how good you can be? Are you trusting in what you and your flesh can do? Or are you trusting in what God the Father provided in his Son, your salvation does not rest on what you can do. It rests on what Christ has done, on the finished work of Christ. Why then the law? So we could see our need for the Savior to do what we could not do ourselves. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that picture, Lord. Help us to remind us each time we sin, even after salvation, even after redemption, that great need we had of the, the Savior, and we could not do it ourselves. How even back to Father Abraham, even back before time existed, you had that plan, and that plan was your son to be that final sacrifice, to be the one and the only one that could uphold perfectly your law. You knew we would fail. You knew we had no ability you knew we needed a Redeemer, and you sent him, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we see that, as we see your law and it reveals to us our failures, we would look to the other side of that, to the grace that's been given to us through Christ. That we've taken on the righteousness of Christ because of what he's done for us. And each time we fail, as we try, Lord, I pray that you would give us a great desire for holiness, great desire for your laws and precepts to commune with you, to meet with you in prayer, to serve you with every bit of our being, Lord. I pray, Lord, that, that those that don't know you, that don't understand, that have no one to turn to, that don't understand the Savior that I serve, that you would open up their eyes, that you'd help them to see as I've seen, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless your church, Lord, as we look around and we see the things in the world and our illnesses and infirmities and the calamities, remind us, Lord, it's been taking care of it, taking care for us. Nothing is out of your control, the omniscient and omnipotent, the all-powerful God who's seen where we're at today when before time existed. I pray, Lord, you raise in us people that are pleasing to you, people that want to serve you, Lord. I pray you continue to give us a desire for your word. You continue to build this church and to a place that's pleasing for you. Ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.